clapping and Hosanna. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Uh, We don't celebrate Palm Sunday every single Sunday, but we're celebrating it early this year. Because in our study of Mark's gospel, uh, we are, we've arrived at Mark chapter 11 with a triumphal entry. Uh, there are many new faces here today, so I'll say welcome. Good to have you with us today. Uh, for those who have been around for a while, you may have forgotten my face. It's probably been about a month since I've been here, so <laughs> good to see you all again. We've missed you, and it's glad, we're glad to be back. Over the last few weeks, we've heard from Pastor Scott and Steve. We wrapped up 2022 with a month-long series on humility through the Christmas season. And now that our Christmas series is done, we'll begin our Easter series. And I'm only kind of joking about that. Uh, So far, the first ten chapters of Mark's Gospel have been covering the earthly ministry of Jesus from his baptism until this time. So that's... Roughly about three years. Ten chapters devoted to about three years of ministry. Now the next six chapters through the Gospel of Mark is going to focus down to about a week. And think about that. Ten chapters for three years and six chapters for about a week. You can often tell how important something is to an author by how much time they dedicate to it. This final week of Jesus' earthly ministry is very important. And in fact, if you go over all of the Gospels, the four Gospels that we have, all of them devote an extended time to this relatively short week. It is a week that changed the world. It is a week that reversed the course of this world towards death. <clears throat> the other side of this week, uh, Jesus will have raised from the dead <clears throat> and All of history from that point on will have been changed. So I'm excited to spend these next few months going over this final week of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Uh, Just prior to this, pardon me, I ran a foot race yesterday in the cold and uh, worked things out of my lungs that I didn't even know were there. So pardon me. Thank you, Steve. Just prior to this, we had the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Jesus has been moving from his ministry in Galilee, now with his face set to Jerusalem. And in the end of chapter 10, he is setting out from Jericho. He is ascending up towards Jerusalem. uh, But he has time to stop and heal blind Bartimaeus, who uh, becomes what some call his last disciple in his earthly ministry. We're going to be picking up now in chapter 11 as Jesus begins to bring his earthly ministry to a close. Let's read now as the son of David enters his royal city. Again, we'll be in Mark chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 here. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, to Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, 
and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem. And he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your great and your mighty deeds. Your works are studied by all who delight in them, the Psalms say, Lord. And we delight in you, and we delight in your works in this world. And Lord, we are delighted that you have revealed yourself through your word. So I pray that you would help us now as we look into your, into your word, that you would bless us, that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit, and give us an understanding of what you have inspired by your Holy Spirit for our growth and our good and for the salvation of the lost. Lord, we bless you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at our passage, we will see that Jesus, the King, has come, and so we should praise God. King Jesus has come, and so we should praise God. As we work through our passage, we work through the verses here, we'll see Jesus as the prophet, we will see Jesus as the King, And we will see Jesus as the presence of God. Let's look at the first six verses here uh, and see Jesus the prophet. In verse 1, we see Jesus approaching Jerusalem. He comes, he's coming from the east side as he's heading towards Jerusalem. And he comes to the town of Bethany and Bethphage. And this again is just east of Jerusalem. He then comes to the Mount of Olives. It was called Uh, Mount Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, because in that time, there were these great, massive olive trees uh, that were all over this mountain. I think there's a few of them still left. I've seen pictures of this gigantic olive tree there. Uh, Many of those olive trees were cut down when the Romans attacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, But he comes to the Mount of Olives, uh, and from that place, if you're standing at the Mount of Olives, Uh, downhill from there, you get to the Kidron Valley, which is on the east side of Jerusalem, and then it's up to Jerusalem. And Jesus arrives there with his disciples. As we see in our text here, he sends two of them ahead. Uh, Verses 2 to 6 tells us something important about Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and read it again. Verse 2, he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And went away, found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. Some of those standing said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Notice that Jesus tells them a detailed description, not only of what they're supposed to do, but what they will find when they get there, what people are going to say to them, and what then they should say back to these people and and what's going to happen. And you know, it happens exactly the way that Jesus says it will happen. 
How is that even possible? It's not as if Jesus had physically been in that village just yesterday uh, and could make a good educated guess as to what people would say. No, Jesus had a perception of exactly what lay in that village. He knew the people there and what they would do. Uh, and it's not because he'd been there the day prior. And we often say that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And here, we see in his ministry here, that he is a prophet. Jesus prophetically perceives the event that lay ahead. Uh, and he's going to set that very event in motion by sending his disciples on. Jesus is the prophet par excellence. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses, towards the end of his life, prophesies that God is going to raise up a prophet like him from the midst of the people of Israel. And that prophet had not been sent throughout the years following until this moment. Jesus is that foretold prophet. Uh, he is here coming as a prophet to the city of Jerusalem. This is the same city that Jesus laments over in Luke chapter 13. Jesus says in Luke 13, verse 33, he says, For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He understands that in his prophetic role, his death lay ahead for him at Jerusalem. Jesus says this uh, as he sees what's in the future, and uh, he sees far more than just that there's a donkey's colt there. He knows the kind of city that that colt is going to lead him into. Uh, he knows what he must do there, and he knows what's going to happen to him there. But that being said, Jesus is no pathetic victim. We should never say, poor Jesus. Oh, so many horrible things happened to him. You know, Jesus did this willingly. He knew what lay ahead of him, and he pressed on in obedience and in courage. There was never a braver man than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he sends his disciples ahead, and they bring him the donkey that they spoke of. The fact that nobody else had ever sat on this donkey's colt uh, is probably significant. You know, some of the Old Testament laws required that, for instance, uh, heifers, if they were to be sacrificed, they needed to have never done any work in the field. There was an unused dimension to that. That's something probably about a set-apart status for them. And perhaps the fact that nobody had ever sat on this donkey was significant uh, in that it points to the significance of the one on whom... Uh, would sit on it, uh, that would carry the king into the city. But the cult itself is certainly significant in light of the prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling as he rides it. Matthew and John in their Gospels both cite a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that Jesus fulfills in riding this donkey into Jerusalem. That passage reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As Jesus saddles this donkey, he is intentionally fulfilling this prophecy of Israel's coming king. Let's turn now and consider Jesus as the king as we look at verses 7 to 10. As we saw, the disciples bring the colt to Jesus. 
As the text reads here in verse 7, uh, they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. As Jesus sits on this donkey, the view in front of him would have been filled up with his disciples who were around him. He would have seen a large crowd of people who are heading towards Jerusalem. Uh, the, the city of Jerusalem is about one week out from the Passover, and usually when the Passover took place at this time, the, the number of people in Jerusalem would swell four times. Uh, it would be a huge, massive amount of people. And one week out from the Passover, and it's only several days before it's going to be celebrated, people would be traveling on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So there's a large group of people with Jesus as he's heading out, and then before him is the city of Jerusalem, uh, down over the Kidron Valley. Jesus rides the donkey towards his royal city, and as he's doing that, people perceive that something big is going on, and they join into the moment. They throw their garments on the ground in front of him to ride on. They go into the field and they start cutting off branches uh, and throwing that on the ground in front of him. This would have been quite the sight to behold. And the moment boils over into praises and shouts. There are people in front of Jesus and people behind him. And they're shouting out, as we've seen already, they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, the people shout, Hosanna. Uh, Steve shared a little bit about that word. It comes from Hebrew. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew, and it's two words kind of put together. Uh, Yasha in Hebrew is, is uh, save or please. It's uh, may he save as a verb. So names like Joshua and Jesus and Isaiah all have a root in that. And uh, the, the na at the end of it is a particle, which just in Hebrew means please. It's a way of, if you're going to in a sense, command God, you're going to acknowledge the fact that you're a creature. So they're calling to God, save us, uh, please. <laughs> That's the way you address the God of the universe. And so it literally means save us, please. Uh, as Steve shared, that phrase, as time went on, became something of an expression. We all have expressions. I grew up in Michigan, and when I came to Minnesota, I noticed people said things like, oofta. And... <laughs> I've noticed, right, I've, I've noticed that people say that, you know, if they stub their toe, oofta, you know, or they, they look on their phone and they see that there's a foot of snow coming in the forecast, they say, oofta, you know. I don't know exactly what that means, uh, but it means something. Uh, it's an expression that we use, and that's how we use expressions, right? And Hosanna became something of an expression for them, and so beyond the literal meaning of please save us, uh, it does seem to have taken on a sense of praise. Uh, and I think that's how we make sense of how it gets used here, in fact. In verse 10, they say, Hosanna in the highest. During the Christmas season, we uh, heard the angels proclaiming at the birth of Jesus, glory to God in the highest. I think it's being used somewhat similarly here. It's, it would seem a little strange to say, save us please in the highest. Uh, I think what, what is going on here is that they are praising God, uh, but that's not the the sense of saving us is not lost here either because I do think in that they are proclaiming God as their Savior. I think that fits what's going on. So Jesus is approaching Jerusalem as the son of David. He's prophetically, he's fulfilling prophecy, riding on a donkey. And the people recognize, at least to some extent, 
that Jesus is the Christ figure. And when they get that, they are overflowing with praise. They have been waiting so long for the Messiah to come. They have been waiting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for their Messiah. And here he is. Can you imagine the rejoicing at that moment? You know, they, they didn't know the half of it. Here is Jesus who is coming. And they say that he is blessed. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus has not only come in the name of the Lord, he has come as the Lord himself. And they bless the coming Davidic kingdom that this Messiah is going to set up. It is hard to overstate the significance of this moment. These people see Jesus riding to Jerusalem as the Davidic heir to the throne. And they are calling out to God their Savior in praise. There's an important shift that takes place in the Gospel of Mark at this moment. D.A. Carson points out that it's at this point that Jesus reveals his messianic identity. As we've been reading along in the Gospel of Mark, you may have noticed that when Jesus confronts a demon and the demon says, I know who you are, you're the Son of God, he rebukes the demon and tells it to shut up, essentially. Or when he heals somebody... In a powerful way, he tells them, don't, don't go out and say it abroad. Now, sometimes they don't always listen to him, so we noticed. Or even when Peter himself declares that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus acknowledges that he's right, and then he strictly charges his disciples not to tell anybody about it. It seems so strange that Jesus the Messiah keeps, keeps it quiet. He keeps telling people to be quiet, don't. Don't share. Don't, don't say it. Keep it quiet. We see that going all throughout the gospel narrative here until this moment. This is the moment that the world needs to know that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, perhaps part of that secrecy is because of what follows ahead. Once he's known to be the Messiah, it will be a matter of days before he's crucified. But here we see that Jesus is going public with his messianic identity. And those who are present accept him. Now they probably don't understand, as I've said, the full depth of what kind of a Messiah he's going to be. But they aren't wrong in praising him. It is right for them to praise him. They might not grasp the full depth of what kind of a Savior he's going to be. But they are right in praising him as the Savior. Now one day, Jesus will be that conquering Savior. I think they expected him to be like David with all the military prowess, and one day he will be. One day when he returns, he will enact justice and bring the world into submission. But he has a different aspect of his mission here. As he's coming to Jerusalem, he is coming to save them from a greater problem than Roman dominance. He is coming to save God's people from their sin. Mark has already recorded from the lips of Jesus three times in this gospel where Jesus has prophesied that he will die and that he will rise again. And that is what Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to do. His arrival to Jerusalem as the rightful king of Israel is going to stir this city deeply. You know, as he gets there, it's not as if he goes and he hides in a corner somewhere. He doesn't lay low. So we'll see in these next few chapters, 
Jesus is going to teach publicly in the temple. He's going to receive and respond with challenges to the religious authorities. We'll even see shortly that he's going to make a whip and drive people out of the temple. Jesus is not going to avoid conflict. Instead, he's going to walk headlong into the conflict that will lead to his crucifixion. And all of this is part of God's plan. The people who are before Jesus praising him at this moment, they might not see all of this. They see Jesus as the son of David riding into David's royal city, and they shout Hosanna. And they're right to do that. And you know what? It's right for us to do that as well. As we've already done in our service, we should continue to sing praise to God for his saving plan through Jesus. It is right for us to give glory to God in his mighty works. If it were not for Jesus, our Savior, and his work for us, then we would be eternally lost. The judgment that God certainly will enact someday would fall squarely on our heads. The eternal punishment that our sins deserve would remain on us for all eternity. Apart from what Christ does here, we would be lost for eternity. It is right for us to praise God our Savior. It is right for us to sing praise to him for what he's done. We should sing praise to Jesus, the Savior, the Son of David. As we turn to verse 11, we'll see Jesus as the presence of God. This last verse here may seem anticlimactic compared to everything that's come before it. You know, you get this grand entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. He enters the royal city. Uh, what's he going to do? The first thing he does is he walks into the temple. That's kind of exciting so far. Think about that. He, he goes right on into the temple. Well, what happens next? Well, he, text says he looks around at everything, and then he goes to his lodging for the night. Well, that might not be as exciting as we expected. But we don't want to move beyond this verse too quickly. Although it may not seem as significant as the triumphal entry, I think this moment is significant. I mean, think about this. Jesus has entered into the temple and surveyed the place. Uh, now, he has been there before. We read, for instance, when he was 12 years old, he entered the temple and he reasoned with the leaders that were there and they were astounded by his wisdom. Uh, we're going to see that he's going to spend the, much of the next week there. And what did Jesus do? Uh, it says that he looked at everything. Uh, perhaps he focused on the tables of the money changers, for instance. Did he see the evidence that animals were being bought and sold there? You know, perhaps he perceived that he was going to need to do something about that. Perhaps he considered the fact that later in the week he'd be in that temple standing trial before the Sanhedrin at night. We don't know all of what passed through Jesus' mind at this moment, uh, but Mark does tell us that he looks at everything, looks at it carefully. And beyond these immediate details... It's striking if we take a step back and think about the fact that Jesus is in the temple. You know, through the Christmas season, we got to hear about who Jesus is. And one of the names that we hear every Christmas season, which is right, is that he is called Emmanuel, which means that he is God with us. And here is Jesus, the ultimate place in which God is present with us, standing in the temple. Colossians 2.9 
saw a few years ago. It says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So in Christ, God dwells bodily. God incarnate is standing in the one place where God told his people Israel that his presence would be in their midst. Now, by and large, the people in Jerusalem that week are going to miss that reality. They, they're going to be more caught up in the physical temple than in Jesus, God's presence in their midst. But we're going to see that that point was not lost on Jesus. He's going to teach about the temple of his body. But the temple of Jesus' body is soon going to be torn down, but it will be raised up again. After Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand, then the Father and the Son will send the Holy Spirit to be in our midst. Striking that in the New Testament, the, the people of God become the place of God's dwelling as the Holy Spirit is sent into our midst to live in us. And through his Spirit, Christ is present in us now. He is there to comfort us and to strengthen us, to challenge us, and to uh, promote good works in our lives. In our passage here, we've seen that Jesus is the prophet, we've seen him as the king, and now as the presence of God. As we reflect on his triumphal entry, we are reminded that Jesus is our king, and it is right for us to praise him as such. Well, I'm going to invite Erica to come and play, and the men to prepare for communion. just want to say a few words about how we practice communion here. We practice communion 